Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. I. Amen. Someday we're all going to know that, aren't we? It is always a joy to be with you. And I, I, I love being at Hazelwood on Sunday mornings. Uh, it, it is, uh, it's just a joy for me. Uh, I, I thank you for allowing me to be with you. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. We are in the sixth of seven churches. Next week we'll be at the church of Laodicea. I trust that you'll be here for that. That'll be the last of the seven churches. But today we're looking at the church at Philadelphia. So beginning at verse 7 of chapter 3, we read, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, you have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power. And have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, we might have ears to hear what your word says, Lord, not just hear, but uh, Lord, hear in a way that we become obedient to that. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you for Hazelwood Baptist Church. I thank you for the testimony that she has in this community and this association in our state, Lord. We bless you for that. We thank you, Father. Now, Lord, as we go into this sermon, Lord, I just pray an anointing of your Holy Spirit come upon this place, upon the people here, Father, that you will draw to yourself those who you have called to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen. The city of Philadelphia was about 28 miles southwest of, we looked at the church of Sardis, about 28 miles southwest of Sardis. Uh, it would be in what is called today... Um, the modern country of Turkey. Uh, Philadelphia was founded around 140 B.C. Uh, by the king of Pergamum, or Pergamus, and his name was Attalus to Philadelphus. And he gave his name to that city, and he called it Philadelphia. So that's why it's called Philadelphia. And the rise of Christianity in the city of Philadelphia really has some... Uh, unknown uh, uh, or undetermined sources. However, so significant was the Christian faith and so great was the growth of Christianity in that city that Philadelphia itself was able to withstand numerous attacks from invaders. 
And it stayed a city that was predominantly Christian up until the time of 1391 A.D., when it finally was overrun by the Turks. But from, but from, from the time of its birth until the time of 1391 A.D., so about 1,500 and some years, it, it was a city that, uh, that, that thrived and survived. But enough about the city of Philadelphia. We need to look at the church at Philadelphia. Notice in the first verse of our text for today, in verse 7, it states, He who has the key of David. So in, in order that we may be able to grasp the meaning of that verse, uh, I need for you to go to the book of Isaiah because we, we understand about, you know, we look at the New Testament sometimes and, and in the New Testament we, we re often read things but oftentimes we, we don't see where there is a corresponding passage to it in the, in the Old Testament. So I need for you to look in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22 because in Isaiah 22, 22, uh, we read this, uh, it says, then I, that is God, then I will set the house of David on his shoulder. Listen, I, God says, I will set the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Now, when you read that, you may think that he's referring to God himself. Or maybe it's a messianic verse pointing to the coming of Jesus. But you would be wrong to surmise that. The question is, who is the Lord speaking of in this verse from Isaiah 22? Who was it that had the key of the house of David? Who was it that opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will be able to open? Who is he speaking of? The person the person the Lord is speaking of, not in Revelation, but in Isaiah, the person the Lord is speaking of is a man by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim. He was the royal chamberlain of King Hezekiah of Judah. Eliakim's position was only superseded by the king himself. That means in, in, all, in all of the, the southern kingdom, that would be the kingdom of Judah, and all of that land, the only person who had a higher position than Eliakim was the king himself. So this is a very important man. And Eliakim held the key to the royal palace, and no one was able to approach the king except through Eliakim. Now, what does this sound like to you? Does this not sound like when Jesus is speaking in John chapter 14? And, and you're familiar with the, with the verse of verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is as if that what happened in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in the New Testament, not by Eliakim, but by Jesus Christ himself. 
Jesus is the only way to the Father. There are religions out there that think that they may be the way. Some people think that, you know, they look at Jesus. Oh, you know, Jesus was a great preacher. Jesus was a great teacher. He was a healer and so on and so forth. You know, folks, you can believe what you want to believe about Jesus. But unless you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father, you've missed the boat on who Jesus is. You're wrong. When Jesus says, I am the only way, it means that Jesus has the key to God's domain. He opens and he shuts. Jesus holds the key to the kingdom. He holds the key to the presence of God. He opens, no one's able to shut. He shuts the door to the, listen, he shuts the door to the presence of God and no one is able to open it. Now there are, there are religions, and I, I'm, for a fact, there are religions in the world today that believe that they hold the key to God's presence. You know, we're, 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 not, the only, uh, we're not the only religion on the block. There's a bunch of them. There are thousands of different religions all over this world. But be assured of this one fact. Jesus is not just some avenue to God. He himself is God. I want to share three things with you just real quick because you really need to write this down. I think you might find room in your notes to write this down. That when you look at Jesus, if you, if you study his word, you'll find that in John chapter 1 and verse 3, that he is creator God. Jesus is creator God, John chapter 1, verse 3. It says that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is creator God. When you read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Folks, that is Jesus. Not only is he creator God, John 1, 3, but he is sustainer God, Colossians 1, 17. You know, the Bible says that he holds all things together. If God were to stay, if God were to remove his hand from, from sustaining creation together, from keeping creation together, folks, we would just bust out in a whole mess of molecules. But God keeps his creation together because the Bible, if, listen, the Bible says that, folks, we are to believe that. He keeps creation together. He is sustainer. The third thing, he is the redeemer God in Titus 2.14. Listen, folks, there is only one redeemer. There's only one Lord and Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. He is creator God. He is sustainer God. He is redeemer God. The Bible is very clear concerning the fact that Jesus is God. In John 14 and verse 7, we read, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And in John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It is Christ who holds the key. It is Christ alone who is the authority to admit or exclude from God's kingdom. Now, I know that there are some that says, oh, God, Christ would never exclude anybody from his kingdom. Anybody. 
If anybody, listen, let me tell you something. If you were to read John chapter 8, read John chapter 8, verses 44 and 47. It tells you in that, in that passage, if you read the, the whole pericope, the, the whole narrative of what's happening there. But if you were to read that, there were many people who came to Christ and they said that they believe in Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, you cannot hear me because you are of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. You see, just because someone says they believe in Jesus, do you think that Satan believes that Jesus is God? I'll guarantee you he does. But that does not save him. He is excluded from God's presence, God's kingdom. You just can't tell God when you choose to believe in him. It is Christ who opens the door to you. It is Christ today when this message is being spoken. Listen, it is Christ who, who, uh, who works in your heart to open your heart up to believe. You read that in Acts chapter 13, 48, and, and it says that all who have been appointed unto eternal life believed. Listen, God opens up your heart to believe. You don't tell God, God tells you. God works in your heart. There will be people here today who will hear this message, and folks, you may walk out of here not knowing Jesus. It isn't because God says, well, you're not good enough or anything. Listen, it has nothing to do with it. It is because you have the moral responsibility to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you choose to walk out of here. You choose to walk out of here. Folks, guess what? Until you put your trust into Jesus Christ, you are excluded from the kingdom of God. Period. Period. It is Christ who pursues you. It is Christ who seeks you. It is Christ who comes after you. While we flee from him, Christ pursues you. He holds the key. And he admits or excludes from God's kingdom. There are, to be sure, many who say they have done some remarkable things in and for the name of Christ and for Christianity. They may say that, that they've been workers for the cause both inside and outside of the church setting. They may say that they've, uh, they've been of great assistance to those who are in need, have been of financial support to those in need, and so on and so on, etc., and etc., and etc. Now let me say that it is a wonderful thing that they've been of such vital help to others. I think that's wonderful. We need to help other people. Still, still, even though we want to help people, even though you want to help people, you want to serve people, still, there is something that is absolutely much more necessary. Take a look at verse 8 of our text. What do you see in that verse besides, I know your deeds? What else do you see there? There are far too many people who might stop right here and think that all they need to do is to keep busy for God. There was a newsman who made a statement that uh, he's going to do as much good as he can so that one day, when his life ends, that God will take all the good 
and weighed up opposite all the bad. And he's trusting that he'll have done more good things than bad things. And God will look at those good things and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter. Do you think that's what God's looking for? Do you think God's looking for all the good stuff that we can do? Folks, you can, you can stay busy for the church and for the kingdom of God for the rest of your life. And all the good stuff that you do won't amount to a hill of beans when it comes to salvation. There's only one thing that will save you. One thing and one thing alone. And that is putting your trust into the person of Jesus Christ. You do all the good you want to do. But it won't keep you out of hell. What is necessary is to understand that Jesus Christ holds the key. And he is, he is, he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one gets to the Father except through him. In chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And after his encounter and victory over Satan, Jesus then begins his public ministry. So now we come to a place where we discover that there is a word that is at the forefront of the Christian faith. You see, there is something missing in our churches, in many of our churches. And it is this word that is at the forefront of the Christian faith. It's the word that is absolutely necessary in the preaching of the gospel. And many, many of us today, we, we refuse to even think about it. I went to one church one time, and, and for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, I preached on this one word. And finally, this one young lady walked up to me. She says, Pastor, she says, I've been in a church most all my life. And you're the only minister that's ever preached on this word. I said, how can that be? She said, I've never heard this before. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus just finishes, just finishes his temptation with the devil. Remember, he just wipes Satan out with that. Just quoting scripture. But after that's done... In Matthew 4, 17, we read, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Are you ready? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word is repentance. Now then, please understand, it is Jesus who holds the key to heaven. And it is repentance. Listen, it is repentance that describes how that journey to glory for us is even possible. What you need to understand, folks, is a lost person, a person without Christ, cannot repent. Cannot repent. Repentance is a gift given to the church. You know why? Because it is only the person who the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated or put life into his or her heart is able to understand when you see who God is, 
When you see who you are in sin, you put those two together and find out that you don't match up to God. Just like Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. When you begin to understand that, you begin to see yourself, you begin to see God. And you, like Isaiah, says, oh, woe is me for I am done. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. When Isaiah saw God and he saw his own sinfulness, he realized, he realized that then and at that point in time that he needed God in his life. He realized that he was a sinner. Folks, repentance only comes when the Spirit of God allows you to have this awakening in your heart to see who God is and who you are. When you see who you are, when you see who God is, you repent and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Repentance is for you because with repentance, there's something else that happens. It's just not repentance by itself, but repentance has a twin, if you will, and that twin is faith. When you walk a repentant life, you walk a faith life. You turn away from everything that is wicked and evil and heinous to God and you begin to turn and you walk with God. Listen, repentance is turning from that which violates the holiness and glory and and honor that God deserves. You turn from that and you begin to walk in faith with God. Folks, when you repent, you're a faithful person. When you're a faithful person, you're a repentant person. It's a gift to you. God has given repentance as a gift to yuns. We have people who have joined the church, whose names are on the church membership roll, who teach our children and adults in Sunday school, who serve on some church committee, who handle the church's finance, serve on pastor search committees. And and listen to this. We even have those who stand behind the pulpit Sunday after Sunday and have never, not ever given a thought about repenting for anything. You could join a church, but you just can't join the kingdom. That kingdom life that you experience is a gift of God to you. You don't join it. God God brings you into it. God brings you into it. He has done all the Folks, we don't do any of the work. What, what, have, what have I added to salvation? What have you added to salvation? What have you added... That makes the blood of Christ even more worthwhile, worthy on the cross, of the cross. What? You and I have added nothing. We're sinners. It was our sin that put him on the cross. We've added nothing for salvation. What we've added is our guilt and our shame. But not for salvation. My question is, how in the world can anyone think of being admitted into God's heavenly domain without ever having forsaken the sins that placed Jesus on Calvary's cross. The person who has genuinely come to Christ, having responded or or, or repented rather of his or her sins, is one that Jesus speaks of in our text. He says in verse 8, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look at verse 9. 
It reads, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan to bow down at your feet. We live in a day of persecution, opposition, and affliction. Even in America, we are seeing the church as being irrelevant, obsolete, and guilty of propagating hate speech. There are some or several who think the church is is mean-spirited and xenophobic. Xenophobic! Do you know who this word is for? It's for everybody in this world. Regardless of creed, color, ethnicity, male, female, short, tall, whatever. This book is for every person in the world. This gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody to hear. For everybody to hear. Because without hearing of the word, faith is not possible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Is that not what Paul writes in Romans? Faith comes by hearing. It's for everybody. There's no xenophobia here. It's for everybody. Mean-spirited. Mean-spirited. We are wanting the world to experience the glories of God's heaven. And we say that we're mean-spirited? Excuse me. I believe they're wrong. But that, be as it may, what is God's promise? What is God's promise to those who continue to remain faithful during these times that are both crucial and critical in the life of the church. Jesus says in verse 9, I will make them, listen, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I, listen, that I have loved you. Do you realize this, folks? Listen, it is Jesus, God who says that I have first loved you. Jesus, I first loved you. Not that we first loved God, but that He first loved us. And if you read Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about that God loved you. Even in spite of all your sin, God loved you. And then what did He do? God, King James says, God quickened you. That means God made you alive. You know what that is? That's regeneration. The Spirit working in your life. God made you alive. He quickened you. He made you alive. And then what did He do? God, when you were dead in sins, after He made you alive, God raised you up and He seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, my friends. He holds the key. And He's done a work in your life. You ought to be leaving here today rejoicing because your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. Why do we sometimes act so sour in life and so miserable in life? We have so much that God has given us. You are God's child seated with Christ in heaven's glory. And we want the whole world to be with us. We also must look at verse 10 especially in the sense that it is so often misinterpreted. You know, people play with verse 10 like they play with a toy truck. 
let's, let's look at verse 10. It says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Common belief. There's smooth sailing ahead. You know, I like to talk to some of you about how smooth your boat ride is. You know, every time Jesus got in a boat, and his disciples were with him. Was there ever a smooth boat trip with Jesus? You read through scripture. Name one time. It was, it was, Jesus, it was a great boat trip we had. I really like being on a lake with you. When you go out on a lake with Jesus, you're expecting some storms. There's no smooth boat ride with Jesus. I want to meet the person here who's had a smooth boat ride in your life. ain't going to happen let's look at the verse verse 10 is not a promise that means that we today will not go through some troubling times there has never been a promise given I guarantee you this I absolutely guarantee you this there has never been a promise given to any church in any, in any generation that has God's promise No church has God's promise that he will spare them from persecution, opposition, affliction, or suffering. In fact, just the opposite is true. There's no smooth boat ride. In Acts 14, 21 and 22... Just to show that there's scripture with this. In Acts 14, 20, Paul, everybody's favorite missionary, Apostle Paul. This is what it says. After they had preached the gospel to that city and, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, see... We would stop there. Say, man, that's great. But sometimes we leave out the last sentence of that passage because we don't like the boat ride of this last verse. Because the last last sentence says this. And saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, we read scripture, we only read what we want to read. Oh, it's smooth. No. I find Christianity not a smooth boat ride. You got seven and a half billion people in this world, and most of them don't like the boat you're on. And they make the waters really difficult to navigate. You are already aware of the fact that in many parts of the world today, the church is going through some extreme hardships and trials. And then in spite of which, the church continues to grow. What do you suppose Jesus means in verse 10? He says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. His promise 
is to shield the church The promise he gives is to shield the church from his wrath, not the wrath of the devil or the wrath of the world, but he will shield you from his wrath. God is not going to pour his wrath out on the church, not the church. There is somebody that's going to pour the wrath out on you, but it's not God. God's promise is that he'll not pour his wrath out on you. But he is going to transform, God will transform your suffering into victory. He will safeguard you and remain faithful to you who endure with patience in the midst of the hour which is about to come. So here's what we need to keep in mind. You have an advocate with Christ who is going to keep you from his wrath. But that does not mean that there is not going to be wrath poured out against you. It does not mean that you're not going to have suffering and affliction and problems and difficulties and struggles and trials in this life. Keep in mind that it is Satan who desires to bring destruction and death to you, the church. It is Satan who prowls about like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8. It is Satan who accuses the church before God day and night, Revelation 12, 10. It is Satan who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10, 10. It is Satan who blinds the minds of those who refuse to believe, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It is Satan who controls and dominates the unbeliever, Ephesians 2, 2. There is coming a day when the created world will end. When this created world will end, God will transform this world. No one knows with certainty when God will bring to a close the history of sinful humanity. I'm not going to give you a date because I have absolutely no idea. You know, God has not shared his calendar with me. And I don't think he's going to either. But a day is coming. Listen, a day is coming when the trump of God shall sound and Christ shall return to his bride to take his bride the church he's coming to he's coming to get you that doesn't mean folks that you get to sit at the bus stop and wait for him to come pick you up we 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 need to as a church we need to stay busy not because we want to get saved but because we are saved we should be serving other people neither you nor i nor anyone else knows when that day might come but this one thing i do know now is the time for you to place your trust into the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day for your salvation. Some people believe that they're going to wait until a more appropriate time. Can you tell me this? Do you have a, do you have a guarantee that you'll be here tomorrow? Can you guarantee me that? You are going to buy a new house. You're going to buy a new house. That's fine. They say, you know what, in 30 years you'll have it paid off. If you're 70 years old, when you're 100 years old, you get that thing paid off. Can you guarantee the bank that you'll live to be 100? Nineteen sixty-eight. Nineteen sixty-eight. I was 24 years old. I just got a Navy a year before that. My first, my first hitch on a Navy. But I just got my, done the first time I was on a Navy. In 1967, I got out. In 1968, 
I'm sitting at home with my mom and dad. We get a phone call. My, my sister, my sister was two years older than I. She was 26. Husband, two children. Two children, husband. We get a phone call late that night that my 26-year-old daughter had passed away. That our, my sister, her, my mother's daughter, my sister had passed away. She had been at a party with her husband and some other friends. And she choked to death on a piece of gum. 26 years old. Left a husband and two kids. There is no guarantee that you'll face, that you'll see tomorrow. Some of us think that we're invincible. You get a penny piece of gum to snuff your life out. Don't tell God, I'll wait for a more convenient time. The Bible says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Some of you out here today, perhaps some of you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Why would you walk out of here and tell yourself that you've got tomorrow or you've got next week or next month or next year or you'll wait till you're old, you'll wait till you're on your deathbed That's foolish. And in fact, it's not you who pursues God, it's God who pursues you. Would you tell God? Stand your ground, I'll let you know. Would you be so bold as to tell God that? Stay your hand from me. Give me more time. Jesus leaves us with his promise. For all of you who will come to Jesus Christ today, for all of you who come to Christ today, as the Spirit speaks to your heart and has opened your heart up to believe and receive the message of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who's, who crucified for his sins, buried, rose again, coming again. For all of you who received that message and put your trust into Jesus Christ, listen to what verse 12 says as we close. The Lord says, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. God will put his name upon you that you are a child of God adopted by him. My friend, today, if you've not ever put your trust into Jesus Christ, what about it? Today, would you do that? 